Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. This is your host, Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Robert McLay. Um, Today we're going to be talking about virtual reality treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. And let me introduce Dr. McRae. He is a psychiatrist and research director for the Mental Health Directorate at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. Dr. McRae's primary research interests involve the effects of stress on the brain. He has studied this at the molecular level, the cellular level, the behavioral level, and clinical levels. He is currently involved in trials examining the use of virtual reality in the treatment of PTSD, the genetics of this disorder, and the role of sleep and medications and resilience against combat stress. He is the author of the upcoming book, Ghosts in the Machine, Stories of Iraq, Afghanistan, and Virtual Reality Treatments for PTSD. He has served with the Navy at the um, Naval Medical Center of San Diego, the Marine Base 29 Palms, Naval Hospital in uh, Yokosuka, and was deployed with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq in 2008, where he served as a psychiatrist at Camp Fallujah in Iraq. While in Iraq, well, in Iraq was the first provider to use virtual reality to treat post-traumatic stress disorder in the combat environment. Welcome, Dr. McLay, and thank you for your service. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to get out the good news about our treatments for our service members. Yeah, over the course of, of our radio show year, we've done a few segments on um, post-traumatic stress disorder with our veterans, and it's something that we're all interested in. And I think, um, as with other conflicts, we're all seeing this on our televisions every day as well. So first of all, let me ask you, um, is there any connection between um, what people are seeing on television and the news and then coming in for treatment from past conflicts, Um, triggering anybody? In terms of does the the news um, uh, make symptoms worse, is that that your question? Right, or are people watching... Um, the military channel and seeing the Afghan war or watching the evening news and seeing what just happened. And are we getting veterans from past conflicts coming in? Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, there's there's often when you see VA statistics about the, the wave of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, right now, everyone assumes that that's just um, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but PTSD has been around for uh, as long as we've had war and probably longer. Um, uh, people talk about Achilles being the first described case, not because he probably was the first case, but, but that's as far back as we have descriptions. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of veterans from, from past conflicts who, who have this condition who are, are out there, and we have people with, with post-traumatic stress disorder from non-combat conditions as well. Um, and uh, sometimes, um, um, you know, new New things that are on the news can both trigger symptoms, but also uh, sometimes when, when, when good news is on, on the news, when, we, when people find out, hey, there actually is treatment from this, you don't have to suffer from nightmares and flashbacks for your entire life, um, that that does bring people into treatment as well. Could you begin by sharing with our audience um, your definition of PTSD, and, and is there a difference between combat PTSD and compassion fatigue and um, PTSD related to natural events 
Uh, sure. So, so first of all, post-traumatic stress disorder is defined by um, uh, what's sometimes called, you know, the, the manual for psychiatrists or the diagnostic and statistical manual. Um, in psychiatry, we don't really treat disease. We treat disorder, uh, meaning we don't really know that there is a single biochemical change or a virus or something else that causes things. Um, we treat um, patterns of symptoms where we see a lot of people coming into our office and say, okay, we've seen this pattern of symptoms a lot um, across the country. Uh, different doctors agree on what that is. It's statistically reliable. Um, and then based on that, we're able to make some predictions about what happened to people who, stay, who don't get into treatment and some predictions about what happens when people do get into treatment. That means it's a valid diagnosis. Um, so uh, that's what the DSM is set up to do, is to allow statistically uh, reliable and valid diagnoses. Um, and PTSD is one that, that um, uh, was formed out of uh, what was originally called Vietnam syndrome um, as far as the, the research diagnostic criteria in there, but, but, but even that had been formed by, by earlier um, diagnoses uh, called shell shock, called soldier's heart, um, various called gross stress reactions is gone by various names. But in terms of how we define it now, um, we recognize um, that first of all, that somebody had a traumatic event, um, and that traumatic event does not have to be war, um, but it does have to be pretty overwhelming to the point where someone feels that their, their life or, or, or in, um, bodily integrity was actually threatened. Um, when someone has an overwhelming stress like that, it, it's normal to have you know, pretty overwhelming reactions. Um, and a lot of people will get stressed out, will get overwhelmed, um, but then will we'll recover and will go about their regular lives. So we don't call it a disorder unless these symptoms don't go away. And somewhat arbitrarily, we say, okay, well, we'll start calling it uh, a problem if the symptoms continue for at least a month. Uh, and we call it chronic, where we have good statistical evidence that it doesn't spontaneously go away if you have problems for at least three months. So you have something bad happen, and you have problems for at least, um, at least a, a month or longer. Now, these problems, we say, fall into three general categories, um, re-experiencing, avoidance, and hyperarousal. So the first part is re-experiencing, is that the bad experience is sort of burned into your brain in some way or another. Um, that can either be on a conscious or subconscious level. Um, on a conscious level, it might be just that the person just thinks about this all the time. They cannot seem to get it out of their head. But it can also be more subconscious, that someone instead can have dreams about it all the time, or flashbacks, or even on the most subconscious level, like a brainstem reaction. Um, that a person may not even be aware that they're thinking about this, but every time they're around a reminder of the trauma, their body remembers. Their, their heart rate goes up, their blood pressure goes up. There really is a lasting impression of that trauma. So that's re-experiencing. The second part of this is avoidance, which means basically that this is changing your life, um, that, it, that it is negatively impacting your behaviors. There are, because of this, again, consciously or subconsciously, there are things that you just won't do anymore. Um, that you, you, you can't talk about this, that you can't go out and do things that are related to it. Or on a more subconscious level, maybe you've decided that this was so bad um, that you can't have any emotions, that you become numb um, and avoid all emotions because, uh, because being in touch with those would mean having to deal with the pain. So that's the second part. You, 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 you're avoiding things, um, cutting yourself off. But the thing is that you're, you're trying to avoid what is really inside your own head. Um, that first symptom cluster. So this puts you on this, this never-ending um, hamster wheel of running away from what is inside your own head, and that doesn't tend to work. 
Um, and the more harder you tend to run away, the more keyed up you tend to get. And this leads to that third symptom cl- cluster, the hyperarousal. The, um, generally, after a while of, of trying to avoid things and having them come back anyway, a person will find that they're more and more on edge. They're jumpy, that every little thing makes them start, that they're more irritable, um, uh, that they can't sleep, that just in general, what's called the fight-or-flight response is um, permanently turned on so that someone is always keyed up and ready like they would be in combat. And this can happen from a variety of different traumatic events. Um, uh, In terms of its modern conception, we first really looked at it in terms of war, but we have discovered that this this pattern can appear after all kinds of life-threatening events. Um, uh, A uh, a car accident, um, uh, people who were, you know, in and around um, the, the... uh, twin Towers in, in 9-11 from sexual assault. So there, are, there can be all kinds of events that can lead to this that do appear to, to cause a similar pattern of problems. Um, there is a bit of a controversy now as to whether the war presents a, a more complex and um, uh, more pathological state of this. Um, we have seen that um, uh, uh, war veterans are often uh, more difficult uh, to treat. Um, then the Institute of Medicine, when they reviewed the evidence for this, said there isn't enough evidence in one direction or the other to say whether combat PTSD is really fundamentally different um, than other, other versions. But the general impression has been, you know, war is more complex, that, that um, uh, it's not just one bad thing that happened to you, but, it, but it's often um, months and months or years and years of bad things happening to you. Um, and this, this can cause a, a more difficult and more complex problem in some cases. And is there any correlation between, like, um, with combat veterans, they're exposed to more um, explosions, they're put in more environments, as opposed to where police officers te- don't tend to have, um, you know, artillery going on around them or... Um, so is there any correlation between traumatic brain injury? And yes, that's something that's, that's really actively being looked at right now um, and actually has brought up some, some interesting historical ideas. Um, one of the names, of course, that PTSD used to have was shell shock. Is uh, During uh, World War I, the first real large-scale use of, of artillery in human history also saw some of the, the, the largest waves of, of shell shock or post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, the Battle of the Somme, one of the largest battles in human history, famously 500,000 psychiatric um, casualties in a single battle and a, and a million casualties overall. Um, uh, and people thought it was the concussive blast of the artillery that was causing this. Um, later, this idea kind of disappeared when, when people realized that you didn't have to be directly in the blast to have these problems. Um, and, and therefore, the, the idea kind of went out of vogue. Um, With modern warfare, we're seeing, thanks to innovations in armor, that we're able to now survive blasts um, that people weren't able to survive before. Um, And interestingly, we have seen that that perhaps those people who have survived blasts um, do have more difficulty than people, say, who had a penetrating uh, injury, a bullet wound or something like that, and maybe that there is actually an increased vulnerability to something like PTSD that occurs uh, when someone's brain is, is, has a, a blast wave um, go through it, that there may, may be a mix of the, the physical and the psychological injury 
um, that, that leads to overall impairment here. Um, that's an active area of research, and we're not to the point yet where we're definitively able to say you know, how those two actions interact. And we'll be right back to talk with Dr. McLean more about um, PTSD and virtual treatment for PTSD. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. While parenting has its joys, it's also stressful. If you'd like help finding practical solutions to the challenges you're facing, listen to Real Parents, Real Solutions with host Tony Shuda. You'll leave with options you can try with your kids right after the broadcast. Tony will interview experts and real parents for real solutions to problems that will reduce your stress and make your family happier. Call in. Write in. This show is for you. Real Parents, Real Solutions airs Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Journey into the realm of spirit, the source of all things. Master fear in these tumultuous times and learn ancient ways to abundant love and healing. Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity, will awaken the unique genius within you. Host Christina Pratt challenges you to initiate your innate powers within to gain health, well-being, and joy through the practices of Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. Tune in each week to Why Shamanism Now, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on 7th Wave Network. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. When you were young, did you feel free to daydream? Were you full of questions such as why, how, and what if? Did you allow yourself to be carefree, to dance and sing? Did you create just for fun? Want to feel that way again? Reclaim your natural curiosity and creativity with Dr. Carol Stalkup on Stargazing Stories, sparking your creativity. Revitalize your life, work, and relationships. Be more playful, be bold, imagine, explore, and live more creatively every day. Tune in Wednesdays at 11 a.m. in the East, 8 a.m. in the West on 7th Wave Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Robert McLay, and we're talking about post-traumatic stress syndrome, and we're going to be talking about virtual reality treatment for post-traumatic stress syndrome. Before going to break, um, we were talking a little bit about the history of post-traumatic stress syndrome, how it kind of has gone from the the shell shock to post-traumatic stress syndrome. And um, Could you just, like, very simply for those of us who aren't, um, neurobiologists explain the cellular um, what happens at the cellular level for folks that have PTSD. Um, I mean, the, the the short answer is that we don't fully understand it yet. But what we do know is that stress physically changes your brain. Um, that this is not just something that is in in people's mind in in the in the sort of metaphysical manifestation of that, but that stress and post-traumatic stress disorder causes physical observable changes in, um, in the brain uh, on scans, on molecular studies. Um, there may be genetic predisposition towards this. This, this is both an interaction of brain, body, and mind, which really in the end are the same thing, is that um, the um, brain, body, mind uh, are in- intimately connected and that, that what we do in our everyday life in terms of stress alters the brain um, and can cause physical disease. Um, so can you begin to tell us a little bit about what virtual reality treatment is? Sure. Um, so uh, virtual reality treatment um, grew out of uh, a much older uh, form of, of therapy that actually went back to the 1920s um, called exposure therapy, right. um, which is based on the idea that fear um, it will burn itself out if you're not actually injured. Uh, was based on some observations with people who had um, different types of anxiety and um, found that, that, that basically how we learn to be scared of things occurs in one of two ways. One, if you're, you're physically injured, if your hand is burned on a stove, your, your subconscious or your brainstem doesn't want you to put your hand back on that stove. It'll, it'll make you resist that because you were hurt. But the other thing is that your, your lower brain learns from your upper brain, um, is that if you, even if you haven't been hurt by it, say, um, uh, something like falling off a cliff. You, you, most of us have not fallen off a cliff, but all our life we were taught not to not to get near the edge of the cliff. So we get very anxious uh, when we when we approach it because we have avoided that our whole life. Um, and in the case of people who have um, abnormally elevated levels of anxiety to something, um, say a fear of heights or, or um, something like that, that if you actually put them in a situation. Um, the, 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 the height, um, that, that if they go there and they do it repeatedly and nothing bad happens to them, that that, that physical feeling of anxiety and fear will, will go away. Um, as I said, this was observed as far back as the, the 1920s in terms of dre- treating phobias and was more recently adapted to the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. We realized that in this case, what people are afraid of or, or have anxiety about is not something external, but actually the thoughts in their own head. Um, and the idea came in that if you, if you actually talked about what, 
what it was that bothered you. If you went over this the story of the traumatic traumatizing um, event over and over and over again, um, something that you probably had been avoiding as part of PTSD. The people who did that um, tended to get better. Um, and they would, as far, par, far as this therapy, it was largely developed in, in, in civilian trauma, say a car accident victim. Um, and what they do is if someone had had a particularly horrific car accident, that in with the therapist, they would talk about their experience um, in the car accident over and over again, but also they would have to physically get back into cars. Um, and the combination of these two was, was shown to be able to allow people um, to overcome post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, in the case of combat PTSD, though, it's not so easy to say just go back to Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam because um, that's a dangerous situation. You, you might really get injured there. And also, in terms of just talking about it, um, that, that that's often an experience that, that can spiral out of control, that someone just closes their eyes and tries to imagine that. They may tr- choose to just block that out and not actually think about it, or it may become too much for them. Their imagination runs wild, and, and it becomes very hard to tolerate. So as technology advanced, the idea came into play, well, how about if we used a simulator? How about if we, while a person talked about it, um, it, since they can't physically go back there, we allow them to go back in a simulator. And if we put them in a simulator while they're talking about it, maybe we can control that level of experience. Maybe we can make sure that they're not shutting it out because, hey, they're seeing these images on, on a, in, the, in the simulator, but also we can control it so that it's not too overwhelming for them. We can gradually um, increase the level of, of um, uh, of stress so that it's at a level at which is tolerable for them. Um, and the first person uh, or the first group to, to really um, try this uh, in post-traumatic stress disorder um, was a group out of Emory uh, who did it with Vietnam veterans, uh, uh, some of the people who eventually collaborated with us on, on our newer project, uh, Barbara Rothbaum, uh, Ken Grapp, and some others who had tried this in Vietnam veterans. Um, and had uh, some considerable success with it. Um, and then, based on that uh, success, uh, some other groups that had been using virtual reality um, to treat phobias and other conditions, um, one, uh, some of our other collaborators uh, with a group called um, Virtual Reality Medical Center, um, have both developed protocols to how could we try this in, in our new group of um, veterans and service members who are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorders and built um, some simulators for us and, and came up with some therapy methods, um, which we, uh, within the military, then um, uh, uh, tried out to see, hey, will this really be effective for our service members here and now? And that's how I got involved, is in, is in, in doing some of the, the studies in our current group of, of, of service members. And um, I'm happy to say that we had a lot of success with, with that treatment modality. Um, coming from the addiction world uh, during the 80s, uh, we, we were beginning to identify a lot of post-traumatic stress syndrome with um, people who were in treatment for substance use disorders, especially women. And at the time, the thinking was that exposure to have to repeat the, the telling of the rape over and over again was more traumatizing than it was helpful. So um, can you comment about sure. that? Um, and, and I admit, when, when I first heard about this as well, I, I thought it was, it was a little wacky. It seemed very counterintuitive. Um, and it seems a little counterintuitive to a lot of patients as well. When you come in and you tell them, okay, 
you know, the thing I'm going to make you do that's therapeutic is the thing that you most want to avoid in life. Um, but the evidence is very solid at this point. Um, it, it is not the only treatment that works for PTSD. There, there are other approaches that do seem to be effective. Um, but several groups have reviewed the evidence on PTSD, and there's a lot of disagreement about uh, lots of forms of therapy. But the only group thing that pretty much everyone agrees works is this, is exposure therapy. Is, is right now it is the most evidence-based um, uh, treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and you can argue back and forth about the theory, you know, but the proof of the pudding is in the eating, as they say. And the fact is that, that this has been done for sexual assault victims. Um, exposure therapy has been done with sexual assault victims. It's been done with car accident victims. It's been done with service members. And most people who do it really get significantly better. Um, and is, it, is, is the research with virtual reality, or is it the story? Yeah, the majority of the research has, is in um, traditional exposure therapy. Um, the, the evidence for, for virtual reality is, you know, is, is not as strong yet. Um, I mean, I, I personally and, and a lot of people consider virtual reality therapy really just a subset of, of existing um, uh, exposure therapy. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think realistically anyone is ever going to create a simulator for uh, uh, addressing sexual assault. You know, it's just not something that someone want, is going to want to create the software for. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, but as a whole, the exposure therapy principles, um, you know, in, in general talk therapy um, for sexual assault or combat um, have, have proven to be effective. And in the, in the case of combat, um, you know, we have some preliminary evidence that at least that the, the virtual reality might be uh, more effective or, or might work for folks in whom the traditional talk therapy has not worked. So to just kind of um, help me get this clear and maybe some of our audience to get this clear, if you go into a virtual reality um, therapy session, are you, you start out with very low exposure to the event right. so, and so then, the, you, then you increase exposure so that you become desensitized? This is the idea. Right? And it's not just about facing the simulator. It is also about talking about your experience. Right. So in and the are you first, monitored? Is you, are, are your, very is your pulse rate monitored and yeah. all that? Well, we, we actually um, have done some work with, with using physiological monitoring in, in here as well, is, is in um, keeping people uh, um, hooked up to, to monitors that can show you know, their heart rate, their blood pressure, how sweaty their palms are, um, uh, all different aspects of, of their physiology. Um, and we're still re- researching exactly how useful that is. Um, it is clear that you can do the therapy quite effectively without that, though. That the, the um, patients are usually pretty good about telling you how good the, uh, or how well they're they're doing in in the treatment and how overwhelming that is. Uh, so even without the the fancy physiological monitoring, we're able to do very effective treatment just by asking patients what's going on. Um, and that, I, I think it's important to emphasize that this is not just going into a simulator and and, and facing the machine. It, you could do this therapy without the machine. Um, uh, with just the therapist. You could not do it with the, um, uh, I mean, you could do it with the therapist but not the machine. You could not do it with the machine but not the therapist. The, the, the machine is an add-on. It, it is a tool. It is an aid um, that helps us here. But, but you're still very much talking to your therapist and letting him or her know what's going on with you um, while you're going through this sort of t- treatment. And that is, is absolutely essential to this success. Does the fact that you're watching what you've, 
um, your combat experience, does it help um, shorten the treatment episode? I mean, does it, does this kind of help you progress faster? That's the idea. We, d- we don't, we're, we're doing the studies right now to really say if that is definitively true. In our s- single group studies, basically our success rates were higher than we would have expected in traditional therapy. Um, when we randomized people to just whatever else sort of therapy that you would normally get versus the virtual reality treatment, people did better in the virtual reality treatment. What we're looking at right now is if you do the exact same thing with the virtual reality and without the virtual reality, is it the virtual reality that really is the aspect that that, that makes people better? And we don't have the answer to that yet. Okay, and we'll be right back um, after this commercial break. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health & Wellness. What's it like behind closed garage doors, where the decisions are made that change motorsports? You'll find out on The Race Reporters, because host Michael Knight has been there. He's a 40-year industry insider and award-winning writer and publicist. Each week, Knight brings together the country's top journalists and newsmakers, and their insights will make you a better race fan. The Race Reporters, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Power Up Channel. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. 
Are you feeling overwhelmed? Do you lack energy and enthusiasm? Do you really want to change your thoughts and feelings? Can you really stay sane when your life isn't? Of course you can, just by listening to Stay Sane Now each week with Claudine Strzok and co-host Wesley Stoller. You'll have fun and learn how to make each new day the best day of your life. Every show is designed to energize and get you started off on the next week. Stay Sane Now is broadcast live Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on 7th Wave Network. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, one hour at a time. Um, our guest today is Dr. Robert McLay, and we are talking about PTSD and reality treatment for PTSD. Um, this, intellectually, this makes a lot of sense when you, when you start to think about being exposed to what your uh, trauma event was and being able to gradually increase your tolerance for, for that um, experience and for the, for the fright or for whatever the emotional experience you had within that um, event. And I'm wondering, you know, when, when we think about trauma, if we think about combat trauma, is it different when when the trauma is related to your best buddy um, being horrifically impaled next to you as opposed to the trauma of, you know, some other type of, of trauma? Or is it just all the same? Uh, everyone's trauma is different. Um, you know, what might traumatize me might not traumatize you. I mean, I, I most clearly saw this in, in my own experiences in, in Iraq. I'm, I'm a medical provider. I, you know, I, I went out there expecting to see people who were shot or injured and that sort of thing, and, and therefore that wasn't particularly scary for me. On the other hand, I'm not real po- happy with the idea of getting shot at. Um, you know, that, that, that was something that when it happened was, was pretty anxiety-provoking. Um, as someone who's used to just kind of sitting in, in a hospital and, and live, living in the quiet life of a researcher. Whereas I would see for, for some of the Marines who were out there, um, you know, that they, were, they came out prepared to, to shoot and be shot at. Um, but they did not come out prepared uh, mentally for the idea that, you know, that war means loss, means injury. Um, uh, on, uh, so dealing with the, the, the different emotions really comes into the, the background uh, and what you bring to it. And for anyone, though, um, you know, having a buddy uh, be grievously injured or, or, or killed is, is something that brings in not just PTSD but grief. Um, and, uh, you know, grief is different from PTSD, um, and it can definitely complicate it. Um, but uh, uh, it, to have that experience is, is going to make life hard. We often say that the, the treatment for PTSD is not going to change the fact that something really horrible happened. If your friend was killed or injured, or if you were, were, were badly injured, you know, there's nothing that this therapy is going to do to change the fact that that was a really sad event. The, the oh. only thing that the therapy is going to change is the fact that, that hopefully you're not having flashbacks and nightmares about it. Right. Um, you know, it changes the physiological reaction, but it doesn't change 
all these other aspects of life that makes life hard and complicated. Right. You know, um, we had a judge from Nashua, New Hampshire on who um, was talking about the need to develop veterans' courts because a lot of, in New Hampshire, we have a lot of reservists that have gone um, to Iraq and Afghanistan and they've come home and um, they've, a lot of them end up getting into whether it's road rage accidents or assaults. And um, this judge is saying that he wanted to start a veterans court because these people are just reacting, you know, to being on a busy thoroughfare and have somebody come up fast behind them and try to cut them off. You know, where maybe two weeks ago they were in a situation where that probably would have killed them, you know. And um, I don't think as a country we do a good job of understanding trauma either. I think that the country has a kind of a, a knee-jerk reaction to, to veterans or to people who have been in traumatic situations in terms of, well, you're home, that's over. Now just, you know, get, get on with being back home, you know. Well, the, the the policy decisions, as they say, are above my 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 pay grade. Um, right. But but I, I I will say you know that that there are a lot of, of veterans out there who who do have that sort of reaction. You know who do discover that hey life back in the states is different and that they are jumpier. Um, uh, and you know the the good news is though that 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 doesn't have to stay that way. Um, uh, the majority of, of veterans who come back will find that sort of reaction naturally fades with time. If it doesn't fade, that is PTSD. And the good news is, though, though with treatment, with therapy, you can learn to, to change that so that, that the car zooming up behind you doesn't have to make you, you jump out of your skin. Um, I am also a registered nurse, and I've read two really good books about um, nurses during World War II. One was called We Band of Angels, and I don't remember the title of the other one, but one were nurses stationed in the Philippines, um, and then others were nurses who were stationed in the European theater. And they talked about having to do their job all the while being in the throes of combat and, and what that was like for them. And I'm wondering, um, do, do the medical professionals, um, even though, they're like you said, you were prepared to see the, the loss of life and limb, but to be exposed in that kind of environment, um, is PTSD there for them too? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, we've treated a lot of corpsmen and medics. Um, uh, the, I, I think particularly at that, that level, the corpsmen and medics, that these are just absolutely amazing men and women. Um, you are asking someone, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, with, with good training, but, but, um, but, you know, not a doctor or a nurse to go out and, and deal with situations that would make a, a veteran trauma surgeon just quake in their boots. Um, and uh, and there's a lot of responsibility on on those men and women. There's a lot of opportunity for trauma there, um, and we definitely see a fair amount of, of PTSD in that population. Um, again, the good news is that we have we've had a lot of success in in treating those folks as well. Um, uh, but 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 definitely being a, you know a, a frontline medical provider um, offers a lot of lot of opportunities for bad things to go on. So, in virtual reality treatment, would um, would what someone would a, would what a corpsman see be different than what yes a um, marine re- recon person would see? Is it tailored to what their actual job yes. was? Um, and actually, in in sort of developing the software, that was one of the original um, development splits that was thought of. Um, so, uh, 
the University of Southern California and um, a company called Virtually Better built a simulator that was meant more for frontline combatants, you know, a battlefield simulator, a convoy simulator. But Virtual Reality Medical Center had built a simulator that was built more for, for support staff. So we have simulations of combat hospitals, of um, bases and construction sites, um, you know, because uh, uh, mechanics might come under fire. Corman okay. has to deal with ho- hospital tra- trauma. So we have simulators that are built um, to address um, issues that are, that are not sort of classic battlefield, um, but, but are definitely associated with, with all the other things that can go along. Uh, with war trauma. When I think about trauma, um, do we are, are we also looking at the effects of the family for the for the person with PTSD? Definitely. How that affects the family? Is there special? Is there evidence based treatment for families? Right. So, um, and which is different? It, it, the 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 person who is not him or herself. Uh, traumatized, uh, doesn't have the same classic pattern of symptoms, doesn't have post-traumatic stress disorder. But that doesn't mean that they're not uh, affected by it. Um, when a family member is, um, uh, you know, involved with this, that, that, that mommy or daddy or, or, or husband or wife have come back different, um, that can very much impact your life. Um, and uh, the military offers, uh, you know, full-service counseling, not just for the service members, um, but, but for the family members as well. Um, you wouldn't want to be doing um, exposure therapy um, with, with those sort of folks because they, didn't, they weren't exactly the same people who were blown up, showing them the video of, of, uh, or, or, uh, of an explosion probably wouldn't help. But, but, they, but they need assistance as well, and there have been uh, a, a, a good outreach effort to really ha- help those folks. Um, uh, also, vice versa, it's often the family member who really brings the person with PTSD into treatment, that they, they see how this has affected their family, and, and that is what motivated them to, to want, want to change. How do people get referred to your study? Um, so we're in a uh, military facility, so specifically for our, our VR study, you have to be eligible for treatment um, at the, the military facility, which means that you have to be either um, an active duty military member um, or have been um, medically retired uh, out, of, out of the military. Um, uh, we, if you're eligible for care, uh, we get most of our referrals um, through people who have already come in and have tried some other form of treatment and want to do something that's a little more active. Um, uh, so we get a lot of referrals from other psychologists and psychiatrists. Um, but, but basically, any, if, if someone wants to come to us directly, um, we'll, we'll see them as well if they're eligible for care here. So we will see people who just uh, learned about our program through something like this, this radio show um, and therefore have given us a, a, a call and, and, and want to come in. And, and we'll evaluate you and, and see if, you can, uh, if we think we might be able to help you with the program. And it really doesn't matter what conflict you were involved in as long as you have the medical disability, they can get treatment well, um, or the if- medical connection. Um, well, for, for this particular study, um, we are looking at just OIF, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and OEF, op- Operation uh, um, Enduring Freedom, basically Iraq and Afghanistan, because that's what we have the simulators for. Um, but uh, across the board, um, service members are, are eligible for, for care um, at military and VA facilities. Um, and if your PTSD is from any conflict, 
um, I would encourage people to come in because um, even, you know, not, not just this virtual reality treatment, there are other effective treatments for PTSD, and we want to get people plugged into that kind of care. What would you consider to be the other kind of treatments of choice for treatment of PTSD? Well, there been, there's been a lot of controversy about this. Uh, six different um, bodies that I know have reviewed the evidence, and none of them have agreed. Um, the DOD uh, VA recommendations, um, I, I generally think, are, are, are pretty reasonable, um, and they say that, that, that really therapy is the first-line uh, choice. Medications can be helpful, but it's therapy that is really key to recovery. Um, among therapy, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, specifically trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, sometimes called cognitive processing therapy, um, uh, can be very effective. Um, and uh, eye movement de- uh, desensitization and reprocessing, uh, even though the, the theory behind it seems a little fuzzy sometimes, the actual outcomes with it have been, been very good. Um, so um, exposure therapy, um, cognitive um, behavioral therapy, and EMDR are the three modes of therapy that the, DA, the DOD and VA recommend as first-line treatments. Okay. Um, and in all of this, have you learned about resilience? Have you learned about what, what protects people from developing PTSD? Or uh, Yes, we've learned a lot about resilience. Um, okay. we, st- we still don't understand it completely because it does seem that almost anyone can end up with PTSD. You will see someone who you think has all the right things to protect them uh, against PTSD, um, that they were well-trained, that they had good genetics going into this, that, um, uh, that they have great social support, and yet it is still possible to get PTSD, um, depending on, on how unlucky you, you got in terms of what your trauma experience was. Um, but we do know some things that appear to be protective. Staying connected to society and to your family seems to be very protective. Staying away from what we people would think is common sense um, uh, bad things are, is very effective. Alcohol use is a big predictor of who ends up getting um, PTSD. Uh, there probably is also a genetic component to this. In other words, just some people are born unlucky and have a higher chance of, 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 of getting this based on, on, on genetics. Um, we're not quite sure what those genes might be, yet we're still working on that. And we'll um, be right back for our final segment with Dr. Robert McClay. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health 
and Wellness Network. Many of us try to maintain a healthy lifestyle, but there is just so much going on in our lives. Food allergies, picky eaters, tight schedules, and the like. We also have so much to think about. Weight management, disease prevention, eating psychology, and creating a healthy meal in minutes. Listen for Nutrition Matters and let Roxanne Moore step in to save you from the overwhelming sea of nutrition information. Roxanne will share success tips to keep you winning with over 15 years as a registered dietitian. Listen Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Robert McLay, and we're talking about virtual reality treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. And before going to break, we were talking about what some of the protective factors were. While although anyone could is susceptible to developing post-traumatic stress, oh, stress disorder, um, staying connected to family is an important um, protective factor. And you also mentioned a couple others. Yeah, so basically all the things that your mother or a good mother would probably tell you is true and when it comes to PTSD, common sense stuff. Um, alcohol is bad. Shutting yourself off in your room and not talking to anyone is bad. Going to church and baseball games or synagogue, um, you know, going out and being connected, doing all those good, healthy things that, that, um, that most of us know keep us mentally healthy are good in PTSD. Um, and the thing is that we, we that p- for people with PTSD, a lot of this can seem very unnatural when you come back, um, that when you suddenly arrive back in the United States um, uh, from, from Iraq or Afghanistan, um, it can seem like a, a, a very foreign place. Um, uh, you can have a tendency to not want to go out there and be back involved with your family or, or baseball games or, or the other things that you used to enjoy. Um, but we know the people who who do it anyway, who go out and, 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 and do talk to their friends and family members, who do go out and stay socially connected, um, uh, tend to do better. Um, and that's about the best advice we've got right now. Um, I was wondering if when we think about, um, I know like with some mental health uh, issues, the sooner we can intervene, usually the better the outcome. And is there anything that's being done, like on site in Iraq or Afghanistan, to um, assess or or help with some of these protective factors or to provide information? Yeah, yes. Um, uh, the military has actually um, uh, actually learned some things over the years, and we've been much better about trying to identify these problems early. So all service members, um, as they're they're leaving theater, are screened for the possibility of post traumatic stress disorder. Um, also, for uh, other things that could go wrong, for traumatic brain injury. Um, we also do realize that not everyone is, is, is going to talk about their problems right away because sometimes they, they don't want to talk to the docs when they're headed home. They just want to get back as fast as they can. So we, we re-screen people uh, three to six months later. Now, for any of these screening programs, um, you know, they're only as good as what people tell us. Um, uh, but, but we definitely have been better 
as far as trying to pick up these problems earlier and really getting people into treatment um, as soon as possible. I know it's been my experience in treating people with substance use disorders that um, men have a harder time being vulnerable sometimes than women do when it comes to trauma or coming. I mean, for years we didn't think that men um, were victims of uh, incest or sexual trauma because they never talked about it. And I'm just wondering, in the military where, you know, it's really important to be able to take care of yourself, is is it hard for people to come forward and ask for help? Is it, you know, do they feel like less than if they come forward? Do they feel like they've failed more because they're having these symptoms? I, I think that that is a, a natural reaction across the board, both inside and outside the military. It, it's hard to come forward and admit that, that maybe you need some help, um, and especially within a warrior culture where, where people are used to being very stoic, and that has served them very well. You know, for most of most of their lives, uh, and very capable, and very capable, right? Um, uh, but you know, the fact is that that I, I see folks across the board, people who you know are special forces supermen, and, and people who are everyday Joes like you and me, um, that uh, you know that everyone can be vulnerable to this, um, and people have to realize that that sometimes we all need a helping hand, and need to come forward. And there's been an effort to try to, to destigmatize this. I think some of the, the really fantastic things that have come forward is where some, some folks who are really upper level um, have come forward and said, you know, look, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, a very senior person in the military, and, and I have or had post-traumatic stress disorder and got treatment. And, and I think that then when people have done that, they've done something incredibly brave and, and, and really helped um, the, the people who are under them to realize that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be this way, that you, you can come forward. Is there still going to be some degree of stigma? Yes, both inside and outside the military. You know, some people are going to judge. Um, uh, some people are not going to, to, to look at, at it in what I, what I think is an objective manner, and, it, and it's going to be hard for people to come forward. Um, you know, uh, we've done surveys anonymously, and when we did them face-to-face, we found that we, you know, the anonymous surveys turned up a lot more problems than when, when people were actually telling us directly. So, you know, it is hard to talk about some of these things, but, but we're trying to do everything we can to make it easier um, to allow people to get into treatment. Um, in your bio, you, you mentioned um, the role of sleep and medications and, and treatment as well. Um, is how important is being able to sleep to being able to recover? Um, from? We don't know yet. To be honest, it, uh, the 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 reason for looking at this came out of the, the when we were doing these deployment um, screenings. Uh, uh, you know, we we ask people about about everything that could be wrong when they come back at the, um, there and at three to six months. And the problem that we noticed that people were telling us most of the time, if, if we looked at everything that, you know, what did you say was wrong, that sleep was what they told us early on was an issue. Um, and that, that having that sleep problem seemed to be related to having uh, a, a larger constellation of symptoms down the road. Now, is that really because sleep is, is a, um, something that, that leads to, to bigger problems down the road? Or is it just that people feel socially comfortable telling us about their sleep problems um, early on, but they don't want to tell us about the other things until they realize that, hey, this isn't going away and I really do need help. Uh, we don't know that yet. Um, so that, that's one of the things we're looking at in terms of, you know, if we do, if we do treat um, sleep aggressively early on, can this actually lower um, some of the problems we see down the road? 
And what would be considered aggressive treatment for sleep? Well, actually, um, it, it involves both. Um, the, we, we don't know yet what's the best interventions. And again, that's what we're looking at is, you know, um, is, is a sleeping pill really the right answer? Do different sleeping pills um, have different effects? Um, because some of them, uh, from a biochemical um, you, uh, uh, perspective, you might think actually would, would help post-traumatic stress disorder. But again, we don't know if that's objectively true. Um, but also, if you look at primary insomnia, in other words, insomnia that's not associated with PTSD or depression or any of these sort of things, that often therapy treatments are better. So we're also looking at, at therapy treatments for sleep early on and seeing if that might pre- prevent PTSD. Um, it's, it's just amazing how much we don't know and, and how exciting it is about how much we're learning in terms of treatment of the brain and treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I want to thank you for being part of our show and, um, and thank you for the work that you do and the people that you care for. Um, well, thank you guys for all deserve the best and I hope you all get it. So thank you very much. Thanks again. Okay. And uh, we'll be back next week for another hour of one hour at a time. And have a good week, everybody. And thank you again, Dr. McClay. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.